0: Let's Talk Development, Episode 3.
1: Hello, I welcome you to this space where myself and our esteemed guest today will be discussing important issues in the climate change water security space in Pakistan. As your host, uh, first let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Fazilda Nabil, and I am a climate and water governance specialist. I'm currently uh, working as the provincial coordinator for the government of Pakistan and the United Nations Living Indus initiative, uh, which aims uh, to work on the ecological restoration of the Indus basin in Pakistan. I'm also teaching courses on uh, the business case for climate action as visiting faculty at Lums University. I completed my PhD back in 2020 from the University of Sussex, and my research focus was on the political ecology of the environment, particularly the history of groundwater governance and groundwater policy um, in Punjab from the colonial period to the contemporary period. As our guest today, we have Dr. Iram Sattar. Um, Iram and I have interacted on various climate and water forums previously, so I'm very happy that she's here with us today. Um, Iram is the former Program Director uh, of the Masters in Sustainable Water Management at Tufts University. Uh, She has received her doctorate in Juridical Studies from Harvard and her doctoral research uh, spans law and policy and focuses on issues of water federalism and transboundary water sharing in the Indus River Basin. At Tufts University, Iram uh, led and taught their sustainable water management program. Adding to this list of um, achievements, she's also an adjunct professor at Pace University. She has taught at the Northeastern University School of Law. And uh, she um, also taught uh, the National University of Singapore's first ever course on water law and policy. Iram's uh, current research, uh, which is very relevant for uh, uh, to the theme for today's podcast, is focused on uh, the impact of climate change as it disrupts water availability, and more importantly, the legal and institutional structures that societies lead, need um, to design to adapt to these growing environmental stresses uh, like floods and droughts and climate warming. Um, Iram, welcome to the space, and I'm very pleased uh, to have you join me on in this very important conversation on climate change and water security in Pakistan. Thank you, Pazinda. Delighted
0: to be here.
1: So let's jump straight into it. Um, let's start off by placing Pakistan's water situation in the context of climate change. We know that climate change, particularly for Pakistan, is a key issue affecting the availability, the timing and the variability in the supply of water resources. Um, I mean, you know, 2022 um, and even before that, Pakistan has been persistently ranked in the top 10 countries in the world that are most affected by climate change. And the floods last year um, in 2022 have illustrated as just a snapshot of what this climate vulnerability could mean for Pakistan's population and for its economy and for its ecology. So I wanted to start off this discussion by delving into the relationship between climate change and water security and and really asking you in what ways um, does climate change affect Pakistan's water supply? So your thoughts on that. But Zinda, what
0: I think we should start with is the long term stress to, uh, you know, again, uh, human and other species the ecological vulnerabilities, right? So the long term stress from climate change to Pakistan's water supplies is, in fact, quite serious. If you look at all of the modeling, and again, this is modeling, but, um, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has Um, very good data to the extent possible towards its projections. Pakistan's reliance on transboundary waters and the extent that those are impacted by both uh, the cycle of monsoons, this affects, as we saw, the floods last year, but also the the quality and the timing it flows of glacial and river flows is on and sort of, you know, going to sort of be impacted by climate change and long-term climate change trends. So the long of climate trends and Pakistan's reliance on its water sources is in fact quite serious. And I'm not sure that we are thinking for the long-term at the moment. And what that means is, you know, the a, a flood happens, right? It's obviously a disaster. Everybody must respond to it and respond to it immediately. But the long-term impacts of something like that, um, migration, right? So in migration, uh, people displaced from where they live, those affects long-term on on society. Do they come to like uh, live in cities? Does that impact does that in migration have on cities, infrastructure of cities? not just water infrastructure, but all kinds of infrastructure. It could be water, sewage, electricity. So those kinds of things I'm not sure are thought about or think thought about in an interlinked way enough. And then of course the water uh, food insecurity is a major issue also, right? Of this kind of climate stress on water resources. Uh, we saw standing crops being destroyed and the uh, planting of you know this season's crops being disrupted, so that's obviously the in the major term, right? So we're looking at uh, two crop plantings that are really impacted by one major flood event. But long no term, if you if, if we remember back in April of 2022, in fact there was a drought stress, right? So the 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 rainfall event and and the flooding were called after what was heat stress that was, in fact, coming quite early uh, you know, uh, to the country. And because April is not when that much heat stress should have been happening. So our crops are getting stressed in both extremes, right? That makes sense that they're impacted by both droughts as well as uh, floods. Uh, so people's food security is concerned. So long-term, Pakistan needs to think of, obviously, the security of water food supplies, of what's happening because of uh people's migratory patterns that they have to adopt because they can't live where they had long lived and had IPOs, as well as long-term food insecurity challenges. So 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 there's like a number of very complex interconnected things that uh Pakistan is facing from the threat of uh climate change and its impacts.
1: I I I agree. I I do I want to pick on some of the sh- things that you mentioned. Um, you know, Pakistan has this this last um, summer, last monsoon season, 2022, it experienced its wettest August since 1961, right? So the wettest August in about um, 60 odd years. And then Balochistan provinces, they received about 75% more intense rainfall than they would have had the climate not warmed up by 1.2 degrees Celsius um so again you know studies have shown that um you know the the the, the monsoon on steroid as it was termed was directly the result of climate warming and as you mentioned the flood scheme um, on the heels of a very severe heat wave uh temperatures were above 45 degrees um, in some areas 50 degrees that resulted in not just, you know, agricultural, a loss of agricultural productivity, but also, you know, forest fires. Uh, You mentioned migration, um, you know, due to floods and other uh, other aspects of the climate crisis. I'd also say that, you know, in my work, I've come across a lot of immobility and um, Mm -hmm. the loss of capabilities that immobility brings, especially for women and elderly, people who uh, chose not to migrate or who could not migrate during um uh, the floods or in the aftermath of the floods. Um, you're right, a lot of uh, you know, interlinked, very complex uh, relationships at play um and 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 you know, the, the, the relationship, the impact of climate warming on water availability is not simply, you know, the, causing the abundance of it or the lack of it. Uh, climate change is really the most principal water issue for Pakistan. Um, you know, whether we talk about, um, you know, floods or droughts or sea level rise, you know, even, even other dimensions, like an increase in the incidence of uh, disease, etc. A lot of it is connected to climate change.
0: Apologies. Can I just just on? I just wanted to uh, just before we move on. I just wanted to pick up on your immobility point because I think that's an mm-hmm. important point because there is immobility and then there is actual disability, right? Where there is an actual inability to woe and you are very very vulnerable. So I'm not sure that we look at the Impacts on the most vulnerable, and there is now uh, sort of you know an increasing focus to, of trying to say that look, we really need to look at uh, you know the long term health impacts and people's disability status, and look at their uh, you know as you're saying immobility, but because of uh, sort of climate impacts and how we, we provide for the most vulnerable, and the other aspect which I think is also interesting is your emotional bond to where you live and your home and your land and where your ancestors are buried. And there is a lot of emotional trauma that is involved necessarily in having to leave everything that you are familiar with. So I think that there has to be a focus on both physical immobility as well as the mental health and emotional impact of, from climate. And and am not, not sure that we uh, are thinking of all of those in 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 you know in the real ways uh, that we must.
1: I I agree. I agree. The psychological costs of moving are hardly accounted for. Even you know when we do these rapid needs assessments, uh, as we did in the aftermath of the 2022 floods, uh, when we uh, you know come up with estimates for reconstruction and building back better. Um, The psychological costs of the people who were impacted, um, you know, what they lost, um, not just in terms of their physical possessions, but in terms of their uh, psychological associations with um, their um, uh, homes and their neighborhoods, I think that and and their ways, ways of living, I think those costs have not been accounted for um so so you know that there's any any estimates are necessarily um uh underestimates so i mean you know a connected sort of question iram that comes to my mind you know whenever we talk about the water security debate in pakistan and the water security situation in pakistan is that pakistan's routinely labeled as a water stressed country you know, that is moving towards water. So Pakistan is going to be a water 25 and we are really at, with you know, 2025 is just a couple of years uh, away. Um, first, you know, can you, for our listeners, try and uh, explain the difference between the two terms, uh, water stress, water security, scarcity? And then, you know, for me, the more important question is, do these terms even capture the problem in its entirety. Do they capture the individual burden of water security in Pakistan? Um, if if I I know we've had a conversation on this earlier, and I I I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate on these terms that are so overused. You know, when we when we talk about water security in Pakistan,
0: right? And I and I and I love that because you're right that um, you know the terms are large and they are sort of these macro terms, and we can look at. Uh, countrywide and then if you start disaggregating where the risk falls, right? It's experienced very, very differently. So on, on a macro level, right? On a population level, essentially water scarcity is just looking at the volume of available water and then trying to look at, well, you know, what is the denominator, right? So what is what are we dividing it by? So uh, essentially what is supply and then what is demand? And one of the things which is very fascinating, and you were alluding to this, right, is how Pakistan's experience of water scarcity has changed over time. Now, that is not necessarily because of a reduction per se in available water volume that the country has available, right? As we talked earlier, the timing, the impact, the intensity has certainly changed, and that has its own very dramatic um, and negative effects. But the uh, it's also that the country's population level has risen. And so therefore, if you try and say, well, then you have, you know, an X amount of water, and then you just have a lot more people reliant on it, uh, then that's kind of where the water scarcity conception is critical. So if you're dividing it by 100 million versus 100, 220, 230 million available water supply, it really changes uh, the amount of scarcity that you're experiencing. What's more interesting is, is, as you're saying, it's a little more broader conception of water stress, right? Because one of the things that we've added in is that it is, and since since especially um, the conclusion of, say, the 1960 Indus Waters Treaty, a lot of our understandings of uh, what is water needed for has developed. So it is not just for human needs so for human development uh, to power cities and, and, and you know, those kinds of things that are more normally thought of and to grow our food, but also ecological stress, right? That's something that we are now uh, very aware of. And we think that there are ecological needs also um, that water has to feed. Uh, if whether they're underground aquifers or whether they are wetlands, and whether lakes and streams have to survive because there are a lot of other species whose lives essentially are dependent and their habitats are dependent on on available water. So I so I think if we really factor in um, sort of you know again environmental flows in our situation into the delta, then we have to start thinking of how stressed are particular places. Um, uh, you know, based on what they have available and what they actually fuller assessment of, uh, you know, water needs.
1: Yes, yes, I, 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 I'm happy that you know you brought in um, ecological needs as one of the other sectors that need water. You know, when we're quantifying sectors or we're when we're tabulating sectors, it's almost always culture, which which, is, which comes first and then industry and then domestic use of water um you know ecological needs hardly make it um, you know to that to that tabular um uh, sort of depiction so i think i think i'm really happy that you know ecological needs uh need to be uh, uh you know we need to start bringing that into the water um scarcity water security debate uh, discourse um But to me, sort of the most striking um, feature or the most striking um, thing about using these water scarcity, water stress indicators, and you know, I've been working with these since about for more than a decade and a half now. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these are averages and they're they're averages, but they're routinely used for quantifying Spark Sun's water challenge. Um so you find these situations where uh there are uh you know pockets of abundance. Um you'll find that you know there's enough water for golf courses and there's enough water for um, recreation parks, um, or housing societies, uh, elite housing societies, but then uh, there are other parts of the country uh, which are extremely, which are under extreme water stress. So I think that 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 um, what's important to understand is that perhaps Pakistan as a whole is not water stressed or water scarce. Yes. There are pockets within Pakistan that are water stressed, and then there are pockets of abundance. Um, in you know what 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 almost always helps those buckets of abundance is an underlying aquifer uh which has been true in the case of Punjab most areas in Punjab have access to a sweet water aquifer uh which helps to supplement you know the available surface water um so that that's definitely uh you know the water scarcity sort of outlook is not as simple as it looks, it has this, these layers of complexity and interconnections uh, with, you know, as as as
0: we've discussed. And, sorry, just to pick up one quick part of what you said, right? So you're absolutely right that you have to not only disaggregate, but one other key factor, and I just want to throw this in, is not just availability, because as you're saying, everybody may experience risk differently, right? So... It is not just the sweet water aquifer, even though of course that's a big addition, right? Having access to easier um, and, and and more usable groundwater absolutely critical. But it's also the inequality that you are sort of you know are alluding to. Inequality and poverty and your inability to pay to transport water long distances and a good quality water are also something that increases people's risk. And that is something where it's your sort of just your economic ability to be able to afford water because there is now pricing and costing and and, and delivery charges that you have to build in. So, you know, just that sort of nuts and bolts of how is it that we could get good quality water to the people who need it and how do we pay for it? So that I just wanted to put in that economic uh, vulnerability.
1: Yes, I I agree, and and you know, Karachi is like a perfect example of what you refer to. Uh, you know, so there, um, Karachi, there's a there's a massive water, um, uh, there's a, there's a massive access issue when it comes to accessing water in Karachi. But then, um, some people are able to better afford, uh, you know, the available the water that's and access the water that's available, um, whereas others are not. Uh, so you know the the then the water challenge really becomes a, an issue of access and directly linked to um uh inequity um social inequity um so you know so so far we we've discussed a few or you know various underlying and the layered dimensions of the water security or the water insecurity challenge um, in Pakistan. Um, I I think I now want to sort of shift the discussion and, um, you know, to do to, to the underlying national and transboundary governing structures that may or may not have exacerbated Pakistan's border security issue or Pakistan's border uh, challenge. Uh, I know that this directly, uh, you know, um, relies on your expertise. So I do want to take some more time. Um, I want you to take some more time talking about this. Um, I know water federalism is something that deeply interests you. If you could, uh, you know, elaborate on the issues, whether in the national water governance structures or um, institutions or uh, the transboundary water governance structures that feed uh, into Pakistan's water challenge. Um, that that and so 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 discussions around that.
0: Thanks so much. And as you're saying, this is sort of what my dissertation was about. So you know, we uh, we could go on a while about this. Um, what is important is one of the things that I don't think we recognize. Uh, Uh, clearly enough, is how much, in fact, Pakistan's interprovincial water sharing and how we do it institutionally and legally is, in fact, connected to Pakistan's transboundary water relations. And I think that one of the challenges um, and one of the things that I try to do through my sort of, you know, speaking and research is to say that, look, these are deeply interlinked because it is absolutely true that the world, even when we are, say, embroiled in international sort of dispute resolution uh, with with mechanisms put together under the Indus Waters Treaty, uh, it is absolutely true that uh, decision makers or arbitrators in those cases, which are actually, say, technically just looking at, uh, you know, water sharing between Pakistan and India, But they look at, very interestingly, and point to, now these, of course, don't have legal standing, but um, anything that, say, a judge or, uh, you know, an arbitrator writes in a case um, has some kind of persuasive value, right? It does have some importance. So that means that they are looking at what Pakistan is doing within the country and then saying, well, you know how should we be impacted by how Pakistan is behaving within its jurisdiction? So how we decide this case between Pakistan and India, and I think that's very important. And I do not think that we understand, for instance, uh, if not enough flows are going down to the delta to keep that functional, and this is again a classic upstream downstream challenge. It pre-Date partition in, in in Pakistan and then it was really compounded through the results of the Indus Waters Treaty and the way that the eastern rivers were sort of given to India which you know sort of exacerbated the delta problems even more um, and that has part that has been part of sort of since you know grief with this since since sort of day one so now the, the interlinkedness of the fact that international arbitrators are looking at how is Pakistan uh, coping with its own, say, environmental challenges, seawater intrusion, et cetera, into the delta and and that viability? And then looking at, well, should we uh, take seriously Pakistan's claim for flows of uh, in international uh, sort of, you know, disputes? And that, I think, is something that Pakistani policymakers and the people who run both uh, interprovincial water sharing as well as transboundary voter sharing in the international realm are not taking uh, are not as cognizant of as I think that they should be in an increasingly uh, global interconnected world. Everything that you do is visible to everyone. Right? There are tweets. There are you know spaces like this. There are everything that we have said and done. Um, there is a record of. And I think we have to understand that the visibility of our actions is in fact very great and permanent. And my, I, I'm absolutely convinced that the better we do within the country to manage, uh, you know, say individual risks to the uh, provincial challenges, I think that we will become a player who has moral authority to speak with, um, with a voice that is taken seriously not only it uh transboundary water governance but also in international climate change uh negotiations that are very linked with uh sort of you know uh, with how they impact our water availability. So I think you know what's within your domain, right, is something you have a little more control of. So obviously you have a little less control of say of what um is happening to uh, and on the Kabul River, say, you know, in Afghanistan, right? But what is happening within uh, within a territory you control, you probably have a lot more control or obviously, you know, by definition. So if we do better there and if we manage things a bit more ethically, I think we can speak with a much better voice. Also in the development of international water law, which is based on international customary law and that is, again, a function of how nations behave. And, and, you know, we have then a moral authority in voice. So I think what Pakistan should really think of is think of these things as just along a continuum. We are just essentially managing water across a range of political boundaries, whether within country or outside, and impacted by global uh, climatic changes. So it's just a continuum and the better we do in any one single domain, it is likely that we can then feed those lessons into another domain and, you know, build up a virtuous cycle of learning that takes learnings from here, one domain and says, well, how can we adapt it to this different context?
1: That's a very useful perspective on the interconnectedness between national water governance and how we fare, um, you know, at the transboundary level. And you know it's it's also very relevant because um, you know the Indus Water Treaty um, has you know it's almost been uh, has been there for about more than seventy years uh, about around sixty years and the Indus Water Treaty now there are proposals to revise the treaty by India but that has the potential to threaten Pakistan's future supply of surface water. Um, what, what, what's your perspective on that? I mean, do you think that it's likely, do you think that, um, you know, we, uh, uh, India is going to go ahead with, with the revision of the treaty, um, given that, you know, article seven already exists, um, and there is a, you know, clause in there for further cooperation. How do you feel about this request for revision of the Indo-Sport treaty?
0: Okay, so this is actually, obviously, it's all so recent, right? Because we just sort of started hearing um, earlier this year, right, that there are these notices. So I think just to give a little bit of context, one of the things that the treaty absolutely allows for is for the countries to keep developing and cooperating. But this particular so-called notice, and I'm referring to it for, for, for that reason, because I have not seen it, and as far as I know, Neither the countries nor the World Bank have released this this you know say, let's call it a notice. Um, and and so it is not a public domain, right So we don't know what it actually says. all we know is what is being reported about what it says. The yeah think from Pakistan's perspective to focus on is and 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 under the treaty mechanism that an international treaty cannot be um, modified, or changed in any way uh, unilaterally. That's just a norm in international law. There is no way, because there is no sovereign who enforces uh, international law, right? It is all consensual, and sovereign actors come and agree to a treaty. So India has basically uh, no authority under international law, under the treaty specifically, to try to unilaterally Uh, modify a treaty. And I think that's something that we should be very, very clear about. Now, of course, having said that, all parties are completely free and as sovereign actors to negotiate um, revisions or updates, right? But again, that has to be a consensual process. Like one person can't just, one party just can't stop acting um, because it doesn't like the terms because then it actually has to sit down with the other party and renegotiate new terms. So, so it's it's a strange, complex uh, situation at the moment because we're hearing about unilateral you know, modification and that is, I, I don't think that that's a realistic prospect um, under my understanding. And um, so I'm not sure that that's something we should take seriously. But, of course, from the time that the heating was agreed, right, and our current understandings just of, say, um, the importance of groundwater aquifers. And, and you know, that's something that, you know, you really focused on and has really developed, right, in time. And so the treaty doesn't touch that at all. And so, um, and, and it doesn't, for instance, touch things like the environmental flows in the beds of the three diverted eastern rivers, right? And then, you know, further downstream. So there is a lot of things that the treaty uh, in terms of the quantity of the aquifer uh, and, and, and and you know, what is happening to pollution, timing of flows, things it doesn't address. So can the treaty be improved in principle? Of course it can. All treaties are sort of um, artifacts of their time and knowledge then currently available. So can and should it be modified? Absolutely. I think that there's nothing wrong with trying to make it even better. But trying to use a treaty as a, instead of like the collaborative spirit, again, if you sit down and read the language, right, it's very collaborative of uh, uh, then Prime Minister Nehru came to Karachi to sign it. So, you know, it, it is meant to be a collaborative uh, sort of a framework and that collaborative framework instead of being approved on um, should not on both sides be securitized and uh sort of used to threaten you know one mm-hmm. another and used as a geopolitical instrument of stress rather than cooperation. And I think that's what we've done since uh you know we've had periods of ups and downs. But at least in the recent past, if we go back and start looking at Kishar and Bauthingar, right? Um and, and and you know how uh, India has made water supply to Pakistan into a political issue. If you remember the elections in Punjab that were happening a few years ago, and uh, Prime Minister Modi is on record as saying, you know, uh, blood and water cannot flow together, when he is linking uh, it to the security situation in Kashmir. So it's, it's it's very difficult when the actors have all of these Geopolitical considerations and water um, is being made a hostage to those.
1: I I I agree. Um, You know, both countries need to be equally committed to and and put aside. uh, You know, the political differences to protect and improve the Indus Water Treaty Um, for the health of the transboundary basin. It's even more critical in this age of climate change. Um, on the age of adaptation, as we as we call it. Um, so, you know, coming towards my final set of questions, uh, as we move towards the end of the podcast, uh, we've discussed how climate Pakistan is defined by its climate vulnerability, and you know, we discussed how the 2022 floods have demonstrated what this vulnerability looks like for the people of pakistan um and 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 how you know what what the future holds it was just just a um a, a snapshot of what the future could hold um as we recover from you know the terrible disaster that last year was i do feel me um, and along with you know several other optimists feel that there is an opportunity to do things differently, to create a more climate resilient future. Um, We, you know, there is an opportunity to do things at the institutional level, at the governance level, at a community level, at an individual level. and you know, to in order to better sort of deal with these climate and water vulnerabilities that Pakistan finds itself in, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And if you could, you know, point to some of the uh, some of the um, the things happening uh, in this space that are that are in the right direction, um, that 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 will be that will be useful.
0: Thanks. I love that. And what I'm reminded of is my, uh, as you know, my mentor, uh, Professor John Briscoe, uh, he was an eternal optimist and he was always, while we were doing our research, you know, we were encouraged to look at the glasses half full. So in that spirit and and channeling a mentor, let me say that I think one of the things that we really can do is to develop Um, a a sense in the younger generation and through this, by this I mean from students um, at all levels up to colleges and universities where they have a deeper understanding of water and climate issues and that could be changes in curriculum and models about. So one of the things that I think is very inspirational, for instance, you know, we just had the floods, right? Very, very dramatic. And part of the problems were the lack of early warning systems and where people didn't really know how long and how quickly rivers, for instance, were rising and, you know, the flood events that were developing, whether it was atmospheric rivers or, or, or in regular river channels. And a lot of countries and states around the world have really tried to involve the citizenry and population more in by training them and, and involving them and in, say tracking the levels of rivers, right? So I think if we build up our curriculums in a way from schools up, kids love to do experiments. If you explain to them very simple things about river channels and they go out once a week and take readings and then can you know feed that back into some kind of data center, where uh, uh, sort of, say, more professional water managers can look at it, it sort of improves your eyes and ears of the crowd. So I think we should uh, sort of really develop curriculum, but also develop a capacity in our citizens of all ages to really start monitoring not just water quantity, not just water quantities, but also quantities, and they're very simple experiments that they can be trained to perform. Um, The state of Kerala is very, very advanced in what it's doing and in training school children, and it's fascinating. And one of the most water vulnerable, even though it doesn't often come to people's minds that this is the case, countries in the world, which is the Netherlands, has a huge network of volunteer citizens who track the level of canals and report them. And that's what data sets are built up from. So I think opening and being more inclusive and including people that look, this really is a shared resource and we all need to come together to do our part, to make sure that it's in good health and in therefore good hands to, you know, sort of be there for future generations also.
1: Thank you for pointing that out. You know, climate literacy initiatives are always so heartening and, you um, you know, in, in, in Pakistan, climate literacy is is seriously lacking. So there was a survey that UNICEF did um, a couple of years back, I think 2021. And, uh, you know, they were asking uh, in that survey, uh, 15 to 24-year-olds were asked, you know, whether they could explain climate. They've learned about climate change in their schools, uh, whether they have or they have not learned about climate change in schools. And um, only 27% of the respondents said that they could explain climate change. Um, about 55% of the respondents said that, you know, they have often heard that word, uh, that they've heard about climate change in schools, but perhaps wouldn't be able to explain it. Um, and about 16% said that they've never learned about climate change in school. And these are, these are uh, you know, youth respondents. Um, but you know there are heartening things that are happening so um i do know that um in south punjab education department has just managed to recently incorporate climate literacy in, in their uh, curriculum in the early years curriculum alasan university has come up with um a, a lovely resource a very interactive resource on climate literacy which is a well so for parents and for teachers um um you know to to use with in early learning centers um and the initiative that i am working on um living in this um you know is has climate literacy as one of the main components you also pointed to uh you know crowdsourcing knowledge uh when you gave the example of uh, students in netherlands um you know, the, it's, it's heartening to know that the government of Pakistan is thinking on those lines. Um, the Under the Living Indus Initiative, one of the key, uh, because it's an umbrella initiative with 25 sub-interventions, uh, one of the key interventions is building an Indus knowledge portal which relies on citizen science and crowdsourcing um, uh, knowledge from citizens of the Indus. Uh, so, uh, for instance, um, having mobile apps that uh, capture water quality, for instance, and, uh, you know, people would be able to report on pollution uh, all along different parts of the Indus. Um, so it, it does incorporate that vision for citizen science, for, um, for uh, uh, you know, giving people a say uh, in in their environment by uh, you know uh, making them by making them responsible for it. Uh, I think that that line of thinking is 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 beautiful and it's it's brilliant because it involves common citizens. It also has very novel um, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, things like you know giving uh, rights of the river uh, rights of nature to um, the Indus River. Uh, and to the not just the river, not just the waters of the Indus, but also the various other ecosystems, the terrestrial ecosystems, the um, coastal ecosystems, the freshwater ecosystems. Uh, so the various ecosystems that the basin uh, is home to. Um, so uh, definitely some good thinking uh, in that initiative, um, and as with with you know the the other initiatives that. Um, the government is undertaking um, the the monster remains the implementation of it and uh, you know how how it's the challenge really is how it's rolled out eventually and and we're hoping that you know that that it will provide the route to climate mitigation uh, to the climate adaptation to effective inclusive um, uh, climate adaptation. Uh, to a more uh, water secure, uh, to more water security for um, a greater number of Pakistani um, in the near future. Um, I'm very grateful to you for your time, Iram. Um, I'm, I I, I really want to thank you for all of the perspectives that you shared. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to get a chance to sort of uh, build on this podcast um, and, uh, you know, do one on uh, exclusively on perhaps the governance bit uh, because I do know that that uh, you and I share. Um, so myself from the institutional perspective and you from the legal perspective, the legal institutional perspective. I'd love to do something
0: something um, on that in the future as well. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you for the rich platform and you're absolutely right. We we are sort of like governance nerds and. Yes, it's on in the doing. So we must have this conversation and keep it going. Thank you.